What's up, guys? Rachel Lindsay here, and I am teaming up with your favorite Ringer podcasters to deliver the Bravo drama and news that you've been craving on Morally Corrupt. It's the show about all things Bravo, from the housewives to summer house and everything in between. We'll be mentioning it all every week. Check it out on Spotify and TheRinger.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome to Trial by Content, the podcast where we force our favorite pop culture to compete in the coliseum of contentious opinion so we can all decide what wins. Each week, your three humble hosts will debate a pop culture topic, set the specific rules, and rumble until a consensus is reached. Then, with input from you, the listener base, we'll smash together our nominations with yours and determine a final four-nominee poll that will decide the one true Trial by Content winner. Hello, I'm Dave Gonzalez. I'm Joanna Robinson. And I'm Neil Miller. Back in 1995, the idea of going beyond infinity was inherently a joke. The greatest animated superhero movie was Batman, Mask of the Phantasm. Moms and daughters weren't getting transformed into furry animals to force them into better mutual understanding. Cars were just cars, not the lone sentient inhabitants of a post-human planet. And movies (laughs) were not made entirely in a computer. Then there was Pixar. So this week, we look back at 26 films, and maybe we'll touch on some superlatives from the over 50 short films as we debate the best Pixar movie. But first, Joanna, we had quite a blowout last week trying to decide (laughs) the franchise MVP. How did we do? I don't know that it's worth saying anything other than the fact that Neil Miller won or Harrison Ford and Neil Miller together, their powers combined, (laughs) won the poll in just a complete massacre of the rest of us. So, uh, yeah, with 81.6, like, none of the rest of us cracked 10%. So, Harrison Ford, 81.6% of the vote, with love and respect to Idris Elba, Zoe Saldana, and Kate Blanchett, who did very poorly. Uh, Neil, anything you want to say in your victory laugh here? Uh, you know, thank you to everyone who voted, obviously, for Harrison Ford. Um, no one saw this coming. It's impossible to predict. And uh, <laughs> huge, huge upset for my guy. <laughs> uh, 
you love to pick the underdog. Like, what can yeah, we say? Yeah. I mean, you're listen. All, you're always championing the little guy, you know what I mean? I am always just trying to get to the right choice, no matter how popular I think it's going to be. And this week, that sort of came together with the uh, you know opinions of the masses. And I'm very, very pleased. Here we go. All right. So we'll see if uh, Neil is going to make it a two for this week as we talk about Pixar. This week, uh, in honor of Lightyear, and also Pixar Week on TheRinger.com, what a website. Uh, we're here to talk about some Pixar films. We're going to get to Lightyear in a second, a movie that definitely one of us has seen. But first, I just want to highlight a few really fun things that are up on the website right now. Uh, there's the best Pixar character bracket going on right now that like is bound to be hotly contested that at least one of us and i mean me is deeply invested in seeing how that pixar right character like we turns were out. <laughs> we were so not like worried but we were we know we know how much people care about pixar characters that we made a whole other article about our favorite characters who didn't make the pixar bracket so like that's just there's a lot of weird ones that you love and you want to see do well but uh, maybe they're not bracket worthy that's over there too Uh, Katie Baker's got a great sort of like history of Pixar, how it went from an experimental studio to a commercial juggernaut. But I think the, the, the one that a a lot of people are really going to be really excited to read is Alan Siegel did a great piece on inside the brilliant, heartbreaking first 10 minutes of up. So if you feel like crying or wondering why you were crying so hard, that's a great, uh, that's a great article to read. So vote on the Pixar bracket, check back in on Pixar week. We are we are here for confusing movies about Chris Evans voicing an astronaut. So uh, that brings us to Lightyear. Dave, once and for all, can you clean up the controversy about what Lightyear is about? Before you do that, I just want to say Disney had to make like a short documentary about this to explain <laughs> the premise of this movie. So, so Dave Gonzalez, what is Lightyear about? Yes, the marketing for this movie is very weird because it is... Uh... Not super complicated, but also has like nothing to do with Toy Story. So at the beginning of the movie, the first thing we see is a title that says in 1995, um, a boy named Andy bought a toy from his favorite movie. This is that movie. And then that's it. No more Toy Story for the rest of the <laughs> runtime. We are watching a science fiction film that is about time dilation, uh, which is actually a metaphor, apparently, for what it feels like to make an animated film which is you go in to do your work and four years later you come out and realize that a pandemic has happened around you or such and such. Uh, Lightyear is an odd movie, uh, but I think it is also some of the most tactile and uh, beautiful work Pixar has done in the render space uh, in a long time. They, they, keep, they keep punching up. Uh, and I'm glad it's in theaters for that, uh, for the specific uh, reason. But it does feel like this is the most Disney Plus worthy entry after we had three theater worthy Disney Plus entries, you know? Uh, I have a really important question for you. Yeah. There is an adorable animated cat in this film. You historically hate cats. How did mm-hmm. you feel about this Pixar cat, Dave Gonzalez? It's not a cat, Joanna. It's a robot that looks like a cat because it's helping Buzz cope with the trauma of time dilation. So they give him something cute, uh, but it ends up being like his uh, partner in crime because it is a robot. So it could plug into things and it could run algorithms and, you know, it's a cat. So cats are fine if they're robots? 
Uh, yeah, it doesn't. It, yes, yes. If it's a robot shaped like a cat, it's ultimately a robot, and I love robots. It's not a cat. Okay, spoiler alert for Dave's pick uh, for the draft this week. Uh, where would you put? So you, so this feels to you like middling Pixar, middling plus Pixar. Yeah, I don't think there's a, there's nothing uh, gigantic about it. Uh, it's a fun movie. Uh, I, but at the end, ultimately, I'm going to forever remain puzzled by this franchise decision to be like this. Somebody needed to know what Buzz Lightyear was before he was a toy, which is not a question that needed to be answered. Uh, so this movie's reason to exist is because it does. But um, as somebody who enjoyed things like the 1980s toy based television series, Captain Bucky O'Hare, um, I I completely understand how young, dumb Andy in 1995 was like, yeah, get me the white guy toy. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's Lightyear in theaters this week. Uh, it is definitely about a real man and not a toy. And I hope that clears it up for you. <laughs> it is It is the better of the uh, legacy sequels that are currently uh, out in theaters right now. Oh, uh, Top Gun is still out in theaters, so don't don't scare me like that. Like you're going to besmirch Top Gun, but I know you were talking about dinosaurs. Okay, Neil, <laughs> yes. <laughs> what are the rules for the debate this week? Well, this week it's an easy one. Your choice for the best Pixar movie must be a film that was created and produced at Pixar Animation Studios in Emeryville, California, as it says at the end of every single Pixar movie. Uh, so it's that simple. We're picking best Pixar movie. Uh, we do have some pre, pre-trial awards to give out, as we always do. Um, Category Crown is interesting this week, guys, because we are giving it to the Toy Story franchise, which now spans four, maybe five movies if you count Lightyear, which I guess technically you count Lightyear at this point. Um, and really for for consistency. I think Toy Story, obviously, the first one was the one that kicked off Pixar's, you know, elevated them to uh, sort of, you know, top tier status in Hollywood. And Toy Story 2 was great. They even eventually added Keanu Reeves to the mix, which... Uh, makes our uh, omission of Keanu Reeves in our franchise all-star debate uh, even worse. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is also a really good place for me to remind you that you can write, if you don't like our choices in these debates, you can always write in to trialbycontent at gmail.com and you know submit your own for our listener submission section. I am sad to report that we did not get anyone stumping for any of the Toy Story movies uh, in this debate, which uh, might might be ultimately controversial. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, uh, we, we think that the franchise deserves some recognition for being great overall. If a listener had written in with Toy Story, Toy Story would be in the debate, but a listener did not write in with Toy Story. So <laughs> here we are. Yeah. So something to think about as we move forward. Next week's going to be another uh, one where... Uh, you don't want to. You, you don't want to not submit your favorite. What's that? Wait. What's what's the email again? Trial by content. Yeah. At gmail.com. Our producer Carlos just said, "I'll never forgive the listeners." <laughs> <laughs> it's your fault, listeners. <laughs> that poor Woody is left in the closet. Anyway, yeah. Uh, our category clown this week is one that we are not surprised that we did not get any emails about. It is the Cars franchise. Uh, and it is the category clown just for being the Cars franchise. <laughs> um, I would say that that first one 
is pretty good. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's okay. But, you know, obviously they kept making sequels to it in their Disney era. And, uh, you know, I'll never forgive Disney for that. So there you go. Um, Category Clown, the Cars franchise. Uh, and then this week we have pretrial dismissals, which I guess is just normally it's a list of like really great contenders that we aren't going to mention in the debate. But I would say that all of the other Pixar films that we do not mention in our debate are, uh, you know, pretty great contenders. Uh, but so in lieu of pretrial dismissals this week, we're just going to talk about shorts because I think the debate will ultimately revolve around feature films. Uh, so I just wanted to ask everybody, what is your favorite Pixar short? And uh, let's start with Joanna. Oh, um, my favorite Pixar short is The Great Bow, uh, which I've talked about endlessly since it came out. But Domi Shi made this great little weird creepy, fantastic, wonderful feature about motherhood and, uh, you know, Asian cooking and the trauma of letting people go and and all that sort of stuff. So I just, I thought it was inc- like, when you're watching Bao, you're like, this is beautiful. And you're like, oh my God, what's <laughs> happening? <laughs> That's why I love Bao. All right. I love Bao too. Um, it gets kind of dark there for a second, but... Uh, that's what I like about it. What I love is that when Domishi pitched Bao to Pixar, I think it was Pete Doctor who was like, yeah, could this be creepier, though? She's like, oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> she was like, I'm afraid this is too dark. He's like, no, I think darker. She's like, OK, then. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> shout out to Bao. Bao, that's a great one. Dave, what's your favorite Pixar short? Uh, this one is going to be Bounden, which was paired with uh, The Incredibles. Uh, but I think it's uh, it's a story of a lamb who likes to dance and uh, bound, as the title would suggest, but gets shorn for his, his wool gets shorn. Her wool gets shorn. His wool gets shorn. Doesn't matter. It's wool gets shorn and it loses confidence and it needs to be uh, taught once again the beauty of bounding by a benevolent jackalope. Uh, but the reason I like this so much is it was written and directed by a guy named uh, Bud Lucky, who is um, a character designer who uh, did a whole bunch of commercial work through the uh, 70s and 80s in terms of animation. He did, I believe, for a period of time, he was the animator on like Tony the Tiger, the their great like sweet spot period, uh, but then joined Pixar in 1990 and... Uh, did fantastic work for Pixar up until he retired in, I believe, 2014. But uh, Bounding is just a great uh, piece of animation and character design. And sometimes when I'm trying to get people to make things uh, look cuter while they're hopping, I send them Bounding. And I'm like, look at the timing on this animation and how things jump here. Bounding. I love it because I use it all the time. Nice. Um, And then mine... My favorite Pixar animated short, it ran alongside one of the more, I guess, middling Pixar movies, Monsters University, a movie that I like but don't love. Uh, But it was called The Blue Umbrella, and it was the first time that Pixar had tried things like photorealistic lighting and shading and compositing. And it was this really, it's this really weirdly experimental, but also simple. It's just, uh, you know, a, uh, a city street sort of brought to life during a rainstorm and it's about uh, a blue umbrella and a red umbrella that find each other along the way and weather the weather the storm and become friends and uh, it's really just a an adorable 6 minute uh 
story, but like I said, it was really fascinating, especially at the time, to see Pixar go from the films that they had made up to 2013 to something where they were trying to be very photorealistic. And I think it's it's just gorgeous. So yeah, mine is the blue umbrella. And you know, like uh, like any person who is a connoisseur enthusiast for animated cinema, I highly recommend watching as many of the Pixar shorts as you can. I'm pretty sure they're all on Disney Plus at this point. And uh, yeah, some some good ones in there. The Spark shorts too. Those are also on Disney Plus and those are really fun. Those are like the shorts that they let people do to learn. And it's fun. Like the Spark shorts are so cool because they have such a tiny budget. They're like little indie shorts almost, except they're made by Pixar. But they have a tiny budget, but they're allowed to go shopping in like the people who make the Spark shorts are allowed to go shopping in the existent components of animation that they have made for other movies. And so basically every spark short is like a lot of cobbled together Franken created. And you'll see like eyes from this and legs from this, and they all come together in a spark short. They're really fun that way. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, Joanna's pick for, for her favorite short bow is a really good, good example of if you're a fan of the people who make things, Pixar is, you know, uh, an easy place to sort of keep the universe of filmmakers straight because they're all sort of all working inside this one building. And you have filmmakers like Domi Shi who did Bao and then did Turning Red, which I would say, uh, even though it's one of the more recent Pixar movies, it's one of the better ones. And uh, I like that element of the Pixar shorts is like discovering filmmakers who are a couple years down the line going to make something great, you know? Yeah, Absolutely. So there you have it. Much love to the Pixar shorts. Now I think it's time to debate some Pixar features. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That means it's time for the opening remarks. Each host is going to get one minute to give an initial pitch for their choice. And we're going to go in the order of who got the most votes. So Neil <laughs> obviously goes first. <laughs> and then and then it'll be like an hour pause. And then Neil and I will come on. <laughs> Dave and I will yeah, come yeah. on. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up. Uh, I will be uh, going last because I got under 3% of votes. So that's going to, we're going <laughs> to kick it off. 
with Mr. Neil Miller. Okay, so mine comes with a personal story, as some of mine do. When I first moved here to Austin, Texas, where I live currently, I moved into this uh, apartment, and in order to get your mail at this apartment, I had to like walk, you know, like a half a mile around the apartment complex to the mailbox. And so there was a day, I want to say it was in the late summer of 2009, that I was heading out to get the mail, and I threw my headphones on and just started playing whatever was on my uh, phone at the time, and that happened to be the soundtrack for a Pixar movie, the score for a Pixar movie. And I start walking, and everything's fine. Nice sunny day. The clouds are out. It's a very Pixar-esque view. And then <laughs> I get to the mailbox, and the musical cues that coincide with the end of the first 10 minutes of Up, Come On. And all of a sudden, I am sobbing next to the mailbox of my apartment complex because of the perfect score for Pixar's masterpiece, Three. Up. All right. Nice. He said the name of the movie. Right I did. There, right there at the end. <laughs> Up. That is, <laughs> that is my, my choice. My, my choice comes uh, from the earlier days of Pixar pre-Disney acquisition. This is 2003's Finding Nemo, directed by uh, Andrew Stanton. Andrew Stanton is sort of, I think, the unsung, is fairly sung, adequately sung hero of Pixar. I think he's the heart and soul of that place. And I think when he, the way in which he injects his personal, emotional beats of his life into the films, not only that he directed, but that other people directed, is part of what gained Pixar's reputation for being sort of this emotional wellspring. So an Andrew Stanton joint, I think, sticks out from any other movie that you'll see. And this one is very personal because it's about him becoming a father. And that is Finding Nemo. Ooh, all right. Did I just give you an assist, (laughs) (laughs) I think you both just gave me a little bit of assist, but here we go. What does Pixar do best? Why, tugging at the heartstrings and accurate renderings of objects made of solid material. So, of course, I'm going to choose the time the studio swung for the fences with almost nonverbal robots, WALL-E. Directed by Andrew Stanton, WALL-E tells the story of a waste allocation load lifter Earth class, possibly the last robo-life still operating on the planet Earth around 700 years in the future, who happens across the blue ball's first self-sustaining photosynthesis. It's a plant, but WALL-E has no context for what that is until he meets Eve. It's the love at first sight for WALL-E, who cares for the iPod robot so much he clings to a rocket that sends her and him back to the Axiom, the giant spaceship where the last humans have been living for generations. So many generations, they have less and fewer bones. Unlike some earlier entries in Pixar's Uncanny Valley of Humans, these versions have been visually simplified to be a little more than egg with expressions, while the axiom itself is populated by a whole cast of cleverly designed robots that help Wally and Eve return to humanity on Earth. This movie has a touching romance built over the humanless first act that climaxes later just because Wally wants to hold hands and will cross the universe and save an entire species to do so. It's a simple story told through light science fiction with Pixar's best visual comedy of their entire run. And maybe most importantly, I could watch it with my heart full and won't have to tear up for engineered sadness. Oh, oh, come on. <laughs> I do appreciate how Dave tries to squeeze everything in there. And I'm just like, well, I cried listening to the score. So... <laughs> Well, I know. I mean, I think Dave makes a good point that I think I think Pixar should operate on a few different levels. 
One is obviously like the technical innovation, like any any Pixar that's pushing the technical innovation envelope, uh, I think is is worthy of mention in this debate and emotion, you know, like uh, Wally, I do think is engineered to also make you cry. Um, I think all of these films are engineered to make you cry. So I wouldn't I wouldn't put up uh, make up any more manipulative than Wally is or Finding Nemo is for that matter. Although. Listen, uh, I've seen a lot of movies, and I would I would contend that the first ten minutes of Up are about as perfect as like cinema gets. From just I mean, montage storytelling, introductions of characters, use of score, emotional manipulation. I mean, there was a point, and this was Up was released sort of in the heyday of big three D where I went to see Up and was immediately glad that I saw it in 3D because I had glasses on covering up my face in the movie theater. Um, Because it's that kind of, it's that kind of movie. I would also contend that it is significant that there have only been two Pixar movies that have ever been nominated for Best Picture. And I would also argue that there's only one that ever really deserved to win Best Picture, and that is Up. Like, I like The Hurt Locker, but I think Up should have won that <laughs> So how many Pixar movies can you say that about where it's like, this deserved to be the best movie of that year? And uh, that's that's probably one of the core arguments for Up in this case. I don't know. I'd argue that for Dave's and for mine, actually. Yeah, this um, is tough because I love Wally. <laughs> so, I know. Like, very nervous here about saying bad things. Both of your choices are movies that I partially love. I think both, I like... Wally, I said this already before we started recording, but on the record, I will say I love like two thirds of Wally. I don't really like the human stuff, but I love the robot stuff. And if it had just been robot stuff. I think that would have been one of my favorite movies of all time. And with Up, the first 10 minutes is stellar, but it all kind of loses the plot once you're like in the thick of the adventuring and it all kind of lays kind of flat in that part of the movie. Until you get to the end and it crushes you again. <laughs> and Nemo is such a clear, <laughs> like, we got a goal. We got to go get this kid like there and back again, sort of narrative that you never lose the momentum or the cohesion of, of what it's all about. So yeah. Nemo has one of the best like momentum of any Pixar movie. Like I think it's like Nemo and Ratatouille are, have sort of the best rhythm and speed of delivering uh, their narrative. And uh it makes them like really brisk and sort of unexpectedly fun watches, even though, again, very emotionally manipulative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's also like Nemo and uh, a couple of others. Maybe, uh, no, no, maybe really it's just like Nemo and then some of the cars have like, oh, Ratatouille, sorry, that was the other one, just have like really straightforward premises that aren't going to like zig or zag from that. Mine has, yes, humans and plants, and Neil has a very entertaining bird and a whole side plot of talking dogs. Yeah, when I besmirched the adventure, it was not about Kevin. I love you, Kevin. Yeah, Not (laughs) about Doug either. Doug is perfect dog. Doug Doug is perfect dog. (laughs) Kevin is one great critter. Well, I think it allows it to be um, somewhat nimble, but again, like uh, Finding Nemo is so forward and it's on the hook the entire time. And therefore, I think you get to emotionally invest in everybody building towards like a thing. So like when Dory joins the search, she's still on the search for Nemo. We're still on the hook. We don't have to take a sidetrack to be like, and also this. The problem is 
um, I guess there's room for derailing things and there's also more room for surprise. And one of my favorite things about how Pixar tells stories is they could have a hook and then in development realize that the best their hook only lasts for 20 minutes or something. So they'll break down the entire story and rebuild it back up to be about something else. So I always enjoyed the idea that uh, Wally's hook was like, how far can we go without having humans at all? And ultimately they found out they couldn't. So they created this hybrid uh, that I think is like as much sly social commentary visually with as little dialogue as possible. There's really only one human character that speaks a lot and that's the captain and he's fighting robots uh, and it was mostly used for laughs. Uh, But I feel like the elasticity of like, what is this movie about past the premise really helps other things that we're not talking about, like Coco or Inside Out or like The Incredibles, where it's like we know the premise, you know, like super family dealing with death in a specific culture. Uh, what if your emotions were personified? But where the plot actually goes, I think, leads to some really thrilling uh, second acts, which isn't really a it's an observation about Pixar overall. Up and Finding Nemo both are very strong, even if some of their uh, narratives uh, feel like uh, uh, cul-de-sacs. I guess I don't think there are any cul-de-sacs in uh, in Finding Nemo. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what you would accuse of being a cul-de-sac in Finding Nemo. We're always on the path towards something. You know what I mean? And like, I think, I think visually, the only one I would question here visually of the three of these is Up, because like Up is perfectly nice but i don't think it's the same like jaw drop of look how they have anthropomorphized that robot they gave it eyebrows how did they do that or uh i feel like i'm under the ocean and finding nemo so like i don't know what what do you have to say about ups visuals neil i mean i like ups visuals because it's very bright and there's just like a lightness to it that i that i think other pixar movies haven't really dabbled with it, it is a good point because with Wally, I think in especially in the you know the first part of the movie where we're on Earth, there's just so much texture in that that is is unlike anything Pixar had done previously. I think the same thing is true of Finding Nemo, where it's about the color that really pops underneath the ocean and the motion too, like the way in which you can feel the water on the animals as you're watching it. You know, yeah. So you know that's a fair point. I think Up is more about the emotion it's about the friendship you know it's it's about the friends that we meet along the way in the cul-de-sac <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's the true adventure the true adventure is the friends do you we think meet along the, way. the mandalorian owes a debt to up i'm just kidding <laughs> that's a tale tale as old as time the you know the reluctant stepdad trope that we seem to be completely stuck in, especially with Disney properties, uh, with everybody needs to have a kid that they need to tote around. You know, up might have started that in two thousand nine. Uh, who am I to say? Um, but this it's <laughs> up walk so Grogu could <laughs> right? force toddle. <laughs> right? um, I do think it's interesting that we all three picked films that exist within what I like to call Pixar's like most perfect run. I know that a lot of folks think that it's like that like 95 to 2003 segment is just like Pixar's rise. But there was this run from 2003 to 2009 that started with Joanna's pick, Finding Nemo, and then included Incredibles and Cars and Ratatouille <laughs> and Dave's. And then it finished with Dave's pick, Wally, and my pick, Up. And this was all sort of 
in the lead up to the big Disney acquisition. These are the movies that they had sort of, the last few movies that they had planned before Disney came in and uh, absorbed them for many billions of dollars. And I think that there's just, they were just on such an incredible streak with films that were, you know, technologically pushing the envelope. They were beautifully animated. And the other thing that I like about these, if I'm, if I can take a moment to say another nice thing about all of our picks is that these are some of my favorite Pixar casts. And I know that's sort of potentially blasphemous to not say that it's the Toy Story cast, especially by the time you get to like Toy Story 4. But I, what I love about these is they never, it never felt like Pixar was going for the big name, right? Like, Disney animation, DreamWorks animation would go out and get whoever the the hot star of the moment was to voice something in their movie. But, you know, even with, you know, Finding Nemo had Albert Brooks in the lead and Ellen DeGeneres. <laughs> I love that Albert Brooks is a Pixar lead, Pixar dad, <laughs> extraordinaire, yeah. You know, they added, you know, Alexander Gould and Willem Dafoe and Jeffrey Rush, you know, and then Wally has some really fun ones, Jeff Garland, Ben Burt the legend who created not only R2-D2, but WALL-E. And then you get to like up and you have like Ed Asner, Christopher Plummer, Ratatouille, which we're going to, I'm sure we'll talk about in a few minutes, has what I believe to be the greatest Pixar antagonist, Anton Ego, played by the, the great hero <laughs> tool. I mean, that movie also has Ian Holm, Bilbo Baggins himself in in the role of uh, of Chef Skinner. So it was this idea that like Pixar... You know, and Pat Oswalt was the lead. They they just loved casting people who were either just really funny comedians or absolute legends. You know, from from back in the day. I think what's also interesting about that like perfect run that you're talking about here uh, with the with the blip of cars, I suppose, uh, is that after after Up, we enter the sequel era of Pixar, which was felt like some diminishing returns. Like Toy Story Three is a great film. Again, Speaking if a listener of emotionally had manipulative. <laughs> Toy <Yeah>. Story 3 <laughs> is Andrew Stanton's story, and it's about when his son went off to college. So what's really fun about Toy Story 3 and Finding Nemo is that, like, these are bookends of, you know, a dad's life of, like, having a little kid and then letting that kid go. And that's Andrew Stanton's story throughout. Really just put a lot of respect on Andrew Stanton's name is the point. It's like a prerequisite for what Andrew Stanton's kid's therapist is going to have to watch. In a, yeah. You know? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. Have you seen Finding Nemo? Yeah, my dad's Marlin, Marlin literally. Um, but, like, some diminishing returns in the sequel era with, like, Finding Dory or Monsters University, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then we're out of the sequel era with Onward, Soul, Luca, Turning Red, and Lightyear. But I'm curious, like, it, do you feel like, I mean, this is slightly off the debate, but like, do you feel like there's, could you name the era of Pixar we're in right now? What would you name it? I think it's the lost Disney Plus era, where we're going to look back at these, especially the ones that have been released during the pandemic, as these should have been really great, iconic theatrically released Pixar movies, but for a million reasons, including the pandemic, they all ended up on Disney Plus. And then, you know, as Dave uh, alluded to earlier, like Lightyear being the first one to be in theaters is sort of disappointing when it could have been Soul or Turning Red or Luca. So uh, yeah, no, I think it's going to be like- Not you, a, Onward. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sorry, Onward. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I liked Onward. It was fine. I think you could also classify it as like uh, 
Pixar realized they needed to look at uh, culture outside of Pixar because there's, especially through the sequel era, uh, by the nature of it, you know, being a sequel era, uh, it's a lot of, we had these guys at the beginning of this company and they figured out how to tell stories for animated movies, what other stories these guys have to tell. So you have, you know, Lasseter, Doctor, Andrew Stanton, Brad Bird, those people Leon Critch. all get, get Leon Critch. Yep. They all pull from those ideas. Uh, and then at some point they're like, what if we let other people tell their stories? And what they found with things like Soul and Luca and Turning Red is that if you allow people to bring in some specificity of their non-white man culture, uh, it can have uh, some pluses on the returns. Or at least it has for me. Should we should we hear what our listeners have to say about their favorite Pixar movies? Well, maybe. Uh, did, is there any other place in this podcast where I get to say Brave is a bad movie? Oh, say it now whoa. with your full chest. Oh, Dave whoa. has a long-standing feud with Brave. Just say it. Say say your piece, Dave. I don't like Brave. I think it's a dumb use of storytelling. I think with they they had a movie that they needed to uh, do new cool hair renders on, uh, and uh, put a dumb movie around it. There are like little, if you guys have ever played uh, the the Legend of Zelda game, the Ocarina of Time, uh, and you know that Navi the fairy is always pointing you towards things like, hey, listen, there are literally plot fairies that lead the characters around to where they need to go. Uh, and then like a horrible Pixar villain uh, that is a bear that has uh, committed the grave sin of just being a bear and not being a person turned into a bear. Don't like it. I'm not. I'm never going to defend Brave because they booted Brenda Chapman off her own movie. So, <laughs> Brave is for the streets, as far as I'm concerned. I think the Bear and the Bow could have had like good potential to be a movie, but yeah, I think what I we think got Brenda with Chapman's Brave movie could have been mess. great. And the hair is amazing. Merida looks incredible, but I'm I'm with Dave. I Neil? listen. <laughs> I only have one thing to say, and it is that I disagree strongly with everything you guys just said. <laughs> I like Brave. Um. And uh, all the hair, the, the innovations they made for hair, not only not just Merida's hair, but like the fur on the bears is really, really cool. And I like the little brother characters. And sure, sure, it may not have the best story of any Pixar movie, but it does have the best accents. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> all right. We're going to let that stand. Now we could get to the listener debates. Uh, we have chosen other Pixar movies you guys have written in about. Uh, spoiler alert. None of them were brave. Good job. Uh, listener base. Um, I'm going to go with my pick with uh, Jamie, who wrote in to say, I write you today to submit A Bug's Life as the best Pixar film. While Toy Story was in large part of the proof of concept for Pixar, proving that a computer animated feature could be successful, Bug's Life was proof that the magic could be recreated. It was proof that lightning could strike more than once. In fact, it could strike a total of 25, soon to be 26 times. Not only is it an exciting, fun world to dive into, it does what Pixar does best, which is to sneak complex metaphors into children's films. This film, of course, is about the rise of the proletariat against the oppressive class, which is possibly the biggest concept anyone's ever tried to hide in a children's movie about ants. I argue that without A Bug's Life, we do not get the next 25 years of Pixar magic. I really like A Bug's Life. I also like A Bug's Life. So (laughs) Um, that one is just, I think, the most forgotten Pixar. And it's, well... Uh, above the good science store. Okay. I'm going to pick our listener, Rachel, who says, 
my pick has got to be Inside Out. First, this film features arguably two protagonists, Riley on the outside and Joy on the inside. Second, this film is incredibly important for bringing the conversation of mental health to children at a much younger age, validating that it's okay to not be okay, while simultaneously educating them on why emotions like disgust and anger and sadness are not just okay, but are actually necessary for humanity and for the development as humans. The film can also serve as a springboard for discussions about loss, relationships with parents, adolescent decision-making, and rebellion, and so much more. Thus, I submit Inside Out for trial by content. Love that from Rachel. Inside Out huge, huge cry movie for me. Big time cry for Inside Out. All right. Well, that means it's time for me to pick one. And this one comes from our listener, Jeff. Jeff says, not everyone can become a great artist, but a great artist can come from anywhere. Yes, I am here to talk about Pixar's masterpiece, Ratatouille. Not only is it a movie about two characters coming into their own as adults, deciding if they should follow in their father's paths or pave their own way, but also a love story, a story of friendship and a commentary on criticism and the corporate food industry. This is all wrapped up in an insane premise about a rat who puppeteers a human. It shouldn't work. They had to have trailers that taught you how to pronounce the word ratatouille. This movie (laughs) shouldn't exist, but I'm so glad it does. It is perfect. Also, the fact that they made the food look delicious and the rats look equally cute and disgusting is pretty incredible. So there you have it, Jeff's case for uh, what I think was was a very close second pick for me personally, which is Ratatouille, which is just such a, those those dreamy landscapes of Paris at night are just some of the most beautiful things that Pixar has ever animated. Um, and then, as Jeff mentions, it has to be one of the Pixar movies with the most ridiculous premise, right? Because like, sure, toys coming alive when Andy's not in his room is silly but like rat controlling a human via his hair is to become a world-class chef is sort of next level of uh of ridiculous yeah it's the old it's the old hair tug that really really drives that home or like there's the so much great physical comedy in that movie i mean the it's just remy so just wonderful. like scuttling around the open kitchen you're like uh. um yeah i never liked ratatouille until someone was talking about it and they were talking about it as a metaphor for being an artist and being, it's not a metaphor for being a critic because there literally is a critic in there, but like talking, thinking about it, like I've never been a technically never been a film critic, but like what I do approach is criticism. And so to, um, to think about that character and then to think about the artist character and their interaction and their friction, but then how, when things connect it's such a beautiful experience and how nostalgia does play into all of that. I think gratitude has a lot to say um, about art and artists, which I think is really interesting. What it has to say about criticism, I think is, is extremely relevant today. Right. Cause I think there's a lot of bad film criticism and uh, out there where it's just, it's very like consumer based. And so Anton ego's message, even though he's the villain or the antagonist for most of the movie about, you know, the greatest risk a critic can take is the defense of something new is just, it was very beautiful to me at the time. Cause I was like a very young person in this industry and was sort of thought of myself as a film critic at the time, but uh, it resonates even more now. Cause I think that there are fewer and fewer people out there who, uh, you know, adhere to that sort of theory of criticism, which is that, you know, most of this is easy, but when you find something new that you can, champion and that will challenge people that 
that's the worthwhile endeavor in criticism, you know? So yeah, Ratatouille, very deeply resonant film. I mean, I think all of these Pixar movies in some way, you know, have, have resonated their message. You know, they all guess have, what Pixar, they make great movies, right? Yeah. <laughs> I guess with the exception of cars, except for the fact that cars reminds us that Disney owns Pixar, <laughs> the cars franchise, uh, and it's uh, unnecessary continuation. Cars is already in the works when Pixar uh, was true. bought by Disney. So, Cars is just John Lasseter likes Cars. Like the same way American Graffiti is George Lucas likes Cars. Every once in a while, you run across a person, they're like, what do you want to do? And they're like, Cars. I'm like, cool, man. Cool. And the, I, the first one, right, has Paul Newman. So, mm, you know, not... Not the worst thing in the world, but... I mean, listen, Larry, the, someone had to pay Larry the Cable Guy for the rest of his life, and it turns <laughs> out it's Pixar. <laughs> I, I I reject the premise that someone had to pay Larry the Cable Guy for the rest of his life. <laughs> um, here's, a, here's a question for you guys in terms of how I approach uh, judging these things. Don't have children. So a lot of these stories, they're about having a ch- child. Uh, Joanna's brought up it up twice now. Uh, don't connect to me in that way. Um, does, uh, what's the Venn diagram, uh, for, for children, uh, for adults with children and for adults without children, uh, that the perfect, uh, Pixar movie, like, sort of has to hit the center of? I don't think, I don't think you have to make a, I don't think just because a movie is about being a parent that it is not emotionally accessible to people who don't have children. None of us on this debate have children and I, I still find myself emotionally invested in in films about parenting because like there are things that you parent even if they're not a literal child like a creation of yours something like that like that emotion you can or the like Nemo is about the like desperate fear of losing something that is deeply important to you that can be anything you know what I mean that could be one of your action figures Dave like whatever you want so I don't know that you need to like create something in a lab that hits those quadrants because I don't think people necessarily stay in their boxes that way. I don't think you need to be a little girl to appreciate Inside Out because Inside Out is just about what it's like to be a human and have emotions in the world, you know? I think I think there are some that rise to like a more universal level, right? Like Ratatouille is about creating and art and food, which everybody likes food. Uh, well, except for Dave. That's um, <laughs> <laughs> true. Hey, now. You know, I... <laughs> I've never um, met the love of my life and spent the entire life building a home together, but the first 10 minutes of Up crush me every time. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, that's one of the magical things about Pixar is, like, you don't have to be a parent to enjoy Finding Nemo. Um, although I think you did have to be, an uh, like, a specific kind of person to like Finding Dory. Correct. <laughs> I do think of all the of all the like premises that we're talking about, I think stuff like Ratatouille and maybe Nemo, there's like a few that work like as well for adults as they do for children, I think. And I'm not sure that's true of all uh, Pixar films, certainly not Cars, I would say. Maybe maybe that's what I was getting at is like we're looking for a Venn diagram where it works for all of these people in my ideal definition of best, I would assume. In the interest of this uh, podcast <laughs> not being an hour and a half. <laughs> I'm willing to withdraw Bugs Life. Here's why. I love it. I especially love the uh, end credits uh, fake outtakes uh, gag that they introduce here. Uh, It is ultimately an Aesop fable uh, adapted uh, with cool bugs 
uh, and was at least close enough to when it was announced to production to get DreamWorks to spring for Ants, which is a lesser but did come out before. So I think, although I love The Bug's Life for its place in Pixar history, it's not the standout movie that these other ones are. It's also, I love that it's, you know, it's a Seven Samurai Magnificent Seven story. That's that's a Bug's Life, and I love that. And I would, I, I think Pixar should do that again, which is riff on another movie. I don't think they've done it since. And that, I thought that was a really fun part of A Bug's Life. But I still do think it's probably lesser, lesser Pixar at the end of the day. Sure. Well, and, and also if you're looking for a great, you know, dissection of like class and elitism and breaking out of a class and, and moving, you know, into somewhere where you're not, into a space where you're not supposed to be, you also get there with Ratatouille. I think it's got to be down between Ratatouille and Inside Out, obviously, but I don't know how to pick between the two. And I think probably I'm leaning Ratatouille because I think for consensus, more people, I see Ratatouille at the top of a lot of people's lists. And I don't want our listeners to think we're not going to put the popular thing on because we're trying to win the vote in a poll that doesn't even have Toy Story on it (laughs) in the first place. So we're going to get chewed out for that. But I don't know. I mean, Inside Out is really special. I really think it is. But um I think Ratatouille like hits for more people than Inside Out does. Yeah. I think, yeah, Ratatouille cast feels like it casts a wider net, again, with one of the more ridiculous premises in in all of Pixar. Inside Out is it's a tough one because sometimes I feel like my love of that movie is more of a recency bias thing, right? It's like one of the great more recent ones. No, I think the death of the death of Bing Bong, you can hold that up against the opening of up for like cry factory experience and then also that concept the concept that your sadness is not just something to be tolerated or born like or to bear with but it is an essential thing that you need in your life as a human being to appreciate joy to ever to be able to feel joy and that concept is something so many adults could stand to learn let alone like children learning it um from a little, you know, blue teardrop in a turtleneck, you know? So I I think that Inside Out has an incredible message, incredible message. But I I do think uh, more people are down with Ratatouille, so. Yeah, I, re- I will always appreciate Inside Out for the little montage where, you know, we spend so much time in Riley's brain and then we jump into some of the teenage boys' brains oh, yeah. and it's just <laughs> chaos. And I'm like, wow, what an... <laughs> Accurate representation of what it's like to be a teenage boy. <laughs> Where like anger is in charge. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as much as I love Inside Out, I think, I mean, Ratatouille, I would say that there are at least five movies that Pixar has made that I think are capital P perfect. And it's the three that we've nominated and Ratatouille. And maybe Toy Story. Toy Story two? three or oh, two. Okay. I don't know. I, I think it's, it's tough three. to pick that fifth one. And I mean, Dave and I both almost picked Coco. So it's ridiculous that po- Coco, Coco was our one, yeah. was our both of our number two picks, and it's not even in this debate at all. But I think Coco is a perfect film. So I can't even listen to Remember Me without uh, like losing it. So even trying to rewatch Coco for this. I didn't get as far as you think I got uh, <laughs> through the entire movie. You know, even though the score and soundtrack for Up holds such a like great place in my heart. It's also Michael Giacchino's first Oscar win, which I think is significant uh, for me as a longtime Michael Giacchino enthusiast. 
But I would say Coco's right up there. The soundtrack, the songs, the, you know, just the whole vibe of Coco is just so great. All right. So is it Ratatouille? <laughs> It feels feel like, like ratatouille. it's ratatouille. <laughs> yeah. It's either a coin flip or it's ratatouille, and a coin flip is not good for a podcast. So ratatouille, it is. <laughs> We've narrowed down the listener pick. It is going to be ratatouille going up against our three, which are you're going to hear about again. But uh, it was Wally finding Nemo and up. It is time for the final statements, where each host is going to get one uninterrupted minute. Uh, to do their final argument, it's going to go in reverse, which means I get to go first. Here we go. Pixar is an animation company. They're very good at storytelling. They're very good at a lot of things. We've, we talked about like the various levels of the onion of Inside Out. Uh, but ultimately, they're making uh, visual movies uh, where we have to both be thrilled by what we see and uh, pleased by what we feel. And I think that Wally is a story that is built to be visually challenging, uh, but also needs to exist in that way uh, to feel full. So I'm going to give you Wally as not maybe the most uh, hard hitting Pixar movie, but the summation of what Pixar does best all in one package. Um, I'm here in the middle again to talk to you about our Lord and Savior, Andrew Stanton, and Finding Nemo. I think, I mean, Stanton has made a few films for Pixar at this point. He's also written uh, several of them. Um, but I think, and and rumor has it that he came in and did passes on this toy, the original Toy Story, et cetera, that actually made it as fantastic as it was. It was, it was just sort of like a concept. And then Andrew Stanton made it a story. And so the fact that Finding Nemo is his first, like this is the first Andrew Stanton film in the Pixar registry. And it really changed. Like if you look at Monsters Inc., Toy Story 2, Bugs Life, Toy Story, those are fine movies, but they're not like the gut wrenchers that you get after Finding Nemo. And I feel like Andrew Stanton and his concept of two plus two storytelling, which is give the audience two and two, but make them come up with four, make them fill in the emotional part themselves. And I'll end here with the Andrew Stanton quote, which is this set out to invoke wonder. It's the secret sauce finding Nemo. All right. So that means this is my last chance to get you to vote for what I believe to be one of Pixar's masterpieces up. And I would like to do it with a fun fact. Here's something fun. Pixar estimated while they were making up, that it would take 23 and a half million balloons to lift an 1800 square foot house. So if you've ever wondered how deep and intense they get about what they are animating, just know that. They were only able to animate about 20,000 balloons to, to lift off the house, but somewhere they spent the time calculating how much it would really take. And on top of that, they built a beautiful, emotional, deeply resonant movie that, like I said has at least 10 of the most perfect minutes in the history of cinema. So our final poll will be Neil with Up, Joanna with Finding Nemo, myself with Wally, and our listener Jeff with Ratatouille. You could find our poll for the best Pixar movie on TheRinger.com, on at Ringer on Twitter, and in the Spotify app where you find Trial by Content. You choose the winner and we'll announce it next week. And of course, it'll have consequences uh, because somebody next week is going to have to go first with singing on the podcast. Neil, what are we doing? <laughs> uh, yes, next week is a huge one. We will be celebrating the musical accomplishments of one of the great composers. We will be debating the best John Williams theme. 
Your selection must be a theme composed by legendary composer John Williams for a movie or a TV show. Send your picks to our email address, trialbycontent at gmail.com. And this week, we have a very special opportunity for you. If you would like to record a voice memo of yourself either humming or singing your John Williams theme of choice, you will uh, then be played alongside your hosts, who, as Dave alluded to, will also be humming and or singing their favorite John Williams theme. So make sure you send those over to trialbycontent at gmail.com. And as always, you can submit suggestions for future Trial by Content topics at that same email address, which is, once again, trialbycontent at gmail.com. So we'll see you next week for uh, a wide-ranging conversation of musical hits. Uh, but <laughs> Spoilers, Neil. Spoilers. <laughs> but until then, please go vote uh, and uh, vote with your heart. Yeah, fun fact, Michael Eisner thought Finding Yuma would fail, so vote for me as a vote against Michael Eisner. <laughs> oh. Go vote! <laughs> this episode was produced by Carlos Cherubo. 